Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Would you like to contribute to the conversation? Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, what condition conversation was in. Jay Talking with Bradley Jay. I listen to morning with the sun up. I'm busy. WBZ News Radio 1030. I tune my radio to AM 1030. The radio's all yours now. I talk to a man whose name is Bradley J. Improved my mind in a wonderful way. I just called in to see what condition conversation was in. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, what condition conversation was in. WBZ, here we go. You are Jay talking. I'm Bradley Jay. We're live, Midnight 25. Your producer is Andrew, working the wheel. Some people say behind the glass, but I think that's a sad thing to say. He's behind the glass. He's working the wheel. He's, he's at the con. He's at the bridge. He's in charge. We have one of our... Favorite authors on tonight, Lawrence Goldstone, who's got a bunch of books. This time, we take a look at historical novel, Assassin of Shadows. Lawrence Goldstone, and this goes back to the turn of the century, getting into the 1900s, and uh, William McKinley and that assassination. How do you do, Lawrence? Hello, Bradley. Nice to talk to you again. Well, it's been a while. It has, yes. All right. Now, this is a historical novel. I want to kind of ferret out what's the historical and what's the novel. As I understand it, most of the facts are historical fact. Most of the things that go on in the novel are facts until you get to the conspiracy factor, correct? Well, you know, yes to a point, but this was a unique book to write because the conspiracy, while fictional, um, Actually, when I was done, I said, hmm, maybe it actually did happen that way. Because it, the, the, the events uh, around the McKinley assassination was very, very hazy. There were all sorts of things that to this day have not been adequately explained. And it, it got me to wondering, that's what drew me to it in the first place. It's a great story. You know, it's very much... Like the Kennedy assassination, there were all sorts of questions. People were rounded up. Everybody thought there was a conspiracy. The original conspirators turned out not to be the conspirators, but it was never really established how the guy got so close. He had two secret service, McKinley had two secret service agents, one on each side. They didn't see, this guy had, a, he had the gun under a bandage wrapped, this huge bandage wrapped on the outside of his suit jacket. So... I don't know, you know, just maybe. All right, let's start from the beginning and talk about the, the America of McKinley's time around 19, you know, elected in 1896, there was a, he, right? He, he had, right, yes, he was reelected and reelected in 1900. Okay, and, and they had just gotten over the big, a, a big sort of financial problem in the, like, 18, yeah, the Panic of 1893, which yeah. was a 
huge, a huge depression. So things were looking and, up. Looking up. Yeah, we had won the war. We had won the war with Spain. McKinley um, kept the country on more or less an even keel. But in order to be reelected, they thought he would need New York. And in order to win New York, he was forced to take on as his vice president someone who he couldn't stand and who really couldn't stand him. And that was Theodore Roosevelt, who became president after McKinley, after McKinley died. All right. And McKinley decided he needed to go on this huge train trip all the way to Buffalo, correct? Well, Buffalo had this enormous um, – Buffalo had a fair – and it was the largest fair, world's kind of world's fair outside outside the major cities. Chicago had had a huge one in, in 1893, but this this fair it it was featured Niagara Falls. Of course, they had electricity because they had hydroelectric power. They had a 40-story electrical tower that people could take elevators, electrical elevators to the top of. They had you know. Acres and acres, 240 buildings. And so McKinley went to this fair. It wasn't like just, it wasn't just a jaunt. He was going to something that was celebrating um, electric power, essentially. Isn't this uh, right in the wheelhouse, the heyday of Thomas Edison? Um, it's, it's after Edison. Electricity, electricity was, was um, really moving along. It had become very, very commercial, but not to the point that homes, homes were starting to be uh, uh, lit by electric light. So electricity, it was coming into, coming into its own commercially. But Edison, the electric, the incandescent light bulb had been around for a couple of decades. All right. The reason I ask or bring that up is because going, jumping forward a little bit, after McKinley has shot, I read that they, uh, I believe it was Edison sent an X-ray machine or they attempted to send an X-ray machine Yes, they had it. They had an they had an X-ray machine. It was it was available, and they didn't use it, which <laughs> turned out to be not a particularly enlightened thing to do. And and the doctors who treated him were supposedly the best surgeons in the country, and they didn't bother using the X-ray machine. Um, he was shot twice. The first one, it was a very low power, um, an Ivor Johnson thirty-two caliber revolver, and he actually picked the first the first bullet didn't penetrate. He picked it out of his breastbone himself. But the second one hit soft tissue, and the doctor said, oh, it was in a muscle in his back, and it won't cause any problems because operating, abdominal operations were, were, were risky. And it turned out that it wasn't in his back. It was in his stomach, and he got gangrene. And for eight days, for a week, it looked like he was going to be fine. They finally, they fed him solid food. He asked for a cigar, and then the next day he was dead. So now we go back to the Assassin, who was a, a yes. Polish, a Polish descent. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, Leon Czolgosz, spelled C Z O L G O S Z. Um, he was a very small, slight. He was an anarchist. Um, he, after the shooting, all the anarchists, anarchists were rounded up. Emma Goldman, of being the most well known, and uh, they. Uh, the authorities tried very, very hard to pin the crime on the anarchist movement, but there was just no evidence. So 
all of them were uh, released. There was probably a couple of dozen across the country arrested, and all were ultimately released. Can you talk about the anarchist movement? And at the time, it was a, it was a thing at that time. It's not so much a thing the now. Anarchist movement, yes, it was a worldwide movement. Um, they were against wealth and power. They were against big government. Uh, they had been responsible for the assassination of a couple of heads of state. Um, they uh, they set bombs. There was a Prince Kropotkin, uh, a, a Russian who was kind of the spiritual head. But because they didn't believe in um, in authority, in, in top down authority, it was a very kind of loose loose knit movement. But they were they were um, an ex- considered an extreme risk. And ultimately, an anarchist uh, assassinated uh, Archduke Franz Ferdinand in 1914 and, and started, essentially started World War I. So the anarchist movement was a very dangerous movement, although, ironically, most of anarchists believed in peaceful change. There was not um, – the violent end of it was not the dominant part of the movement. But where they were violent, they were frighteningly violent. The, McKinley was up there for a few days before this happened, right? Yeah, he was, uh, I think, two days. Uh, he was in Buffalo um, two days before. He, was, he went, he toured the fair, the fair, and then on September 6th, the day he was shot, he had given a speech in the Temple of Music, was, which was this enormous building uh, with a 200-foot-high dome and 50 yards on each side, with if, if you look, you can go on and see the pictures of it in, in really gaudy colors. It was really, a, really quite a temple. And because both previous assassinations of um, you know President Garfield were, were done and President Lincoln were done at very close range, it was thought that if you protect the immediate area, you're basically protecting the president. So after the speech, um, they pressed the flesh in those days, and everybody who wanted to shake hands with McKinley lined up, and they snaked the line around so there was only one person getting close to the president at any one time. There were army there, there were Buffalo police there, and there was the Secret Service, which at the time were not officially um, charged with protecting the president. Uh, they had started doing it, they originally started uh, um, to catch counterfeiters, and they had started protecting the president during the Cleveland administration a little bit. But the, these, um, Sam Ireland and George Foster, two very experienced agents, one was on each side, and they were watching specifically for someone to sh- who would shoot at close range, because that was the only way a president had been assassinated. And Leon Cholgosh, who was this kind of small, um, he was about 5'8", I think, about 140 pounds, came up to shake McKinley's hand. As, as I said, he had a big bandage wrapped around his left hand, and he had a revolver uh, underneath. And when he reached with his right hand to shake hands, he lifted, the, he lifted up his hand, shot twice. Neither Secret Service agent moved. Um, he was tackled by a man who was standing behind him, uh, who was a, a black man who was a waiter at the, at the fair, who had been a, a constable in Georgia, J- Big Jim Parker, who was six foot six. He really was big. He tackled Cholgosh, Cho and then only afterwards the Secret Service agents jumped, on, jumped in on top of him. 
So this is so the first the thing that gives you an inkling that there might be a conspiracy. Well, you know, they asked, obviously asked Foster and Island afterwards, and they said we had been distracted, but there weren't really any distractions. So it, it, a lot of people ask questions. Now, now Bradley, you have to understand, originally, initially, as soon as Cholgos was, you know, identified as an anarchist, they rounded up the anarchists. It was only afterwards that people started wondering, and this was very much like the Kennedy assassination, where people started wondering, maybe there was something, maybe there was a conspiracy from inside the government. Maybe the Secret Service agents looked away on purpose. Now, there was no evidence found, so it never went anywhere. But that's the fun of fiction. You know, that, that's why I do some of these as fiction and not as nonfiction, because you can do these what-ifs, and they're just great fun to explore. It seems exceedingly weird to me that they would allow a man with a bandaged hand to approach the president, where clearly if you were going to approach the president with a, a weapon, that would pr be one of the very primary ways to do it. I, you know, me, I, I obviously felt the same way. Now, some accounts said he had a handkerchief over his hand, right. but that sounds even dumber that he's going to walk up, raise his hand, and have a handkerchief over his hand like a like a bad magician, and shoot. So, in, there is no there is no way that he should have been able to get that gun close enough. And he's shooting from you know two feet away. There, there's no way he should have been able to be that close without being stopped by either Foster and Ireland or even some of the other people stationed around. So I, that, that started me thinking, and uh, I came up and, you know, I found what, and I am not going to go into, I'm not going to go into this at all, but I found the ending, you know, you, you wonder, well, what's the conspiracy, you know, how do you, how do you work it out? And my daughter gave me a book for Christmas about, um, well, I'm not even going to tell you what it's about, but it was about an entirely different subject. And something was in there, and I said, wow, this will work. And then I looked it up, and it was, it was something that would involve a lot of tens of millions of dollars. And I said, this is it. Huh. All right. Now, Cholgosh, he became sort of obsessed with anarchy, and he met with an Emma Goldman, and that factors, yes. factors in, too. My, my study of his relationship with, Gold, with Goldman was that he actually went to visit her at her house, and while she was a little creeped out by that, she did ride with him in a carriage and talk to him, and then warned one of her people that, hey, this guy seems weird. It seems like they just had that one encounter and she thought he was kind of a weird dangerous guy is that yeah they thought he was a police agent oh all right there was a, there was an abe isaac who who did a um abraham isaac the whole family did a, an anarchist who did a an anarchist paper called uh free society and in there they actually printed a warning that there you know if this guy comes to, comes up to you and says he wants to join the movement be careful because we suspect he's a police agent. So nobody in the anarchist movement, um, they were all very creeped, creeped out by him. And, and he, he adored Emma Goldman. And he, he came up to her. She kind of talked to him for a couple of minutes. But it was just, you know, thank you and, and goodbye. Don't call me. 
but they really did. They, they suspected him. And one of the things that made it clear that the anarchists weren't involved was their suspicions about Joel Gosh also. So tell me more about Emma Goldman. Emma Goldman was uh, an emigre, came from Russia, I believe. Um, during the Homestead Steel Strike in the 1890s, she put up her friend. Um, they were starving. The, the, uh, this was uh, Carnegie, Andrew Carnegie's, he owned the steel, the steel mill, and the workers struck, and they were starving. They were starving them. That, that's how they were going to break the strike. And Emma Goldman convinced her boyfriend, Alexander Berkman, to pose as a journalist and go in and see the manager of the, uh, of the, steel, of the steel mill, Henry Clay Frick, and then shoot him. And Berkman went in and succeeded in, in shooting Frick twice and stabbing him. But Frick lived. He was back to work in a week. Alexander Berkman went to jail. Henry Clay Frick... Um, not only survived, but he was a very rich man. And in New York City on Fifth Avenue and 71st Street, he became, Frick was a great art collector. There is the Frick Museum, and that is the same Henry Clay Frick. Um, Emma Goldman was ultimately deported. She was, she was uh, in the anarchist movement. She always claimed that she was essentially nonviolent, but... but um, the Homestead Steel Strike was was an attempted at genocide that they were starving women and children. Um, it was, you know, it, it's a funny thing. It was times very much like now. Some people were making enormous fortunes, and many people uh, were were uh, income inequality was increasing. There were huge technological changes, uh, a lot of disruption. People were moving from one country to another and different parts of the country. So it was a time of great disruption, and the anarchist movement was kind of rooted in that. Is there anything else we can find out uh, find out about? Personally, regarding Chol Ghosh, like what kind of, was he? he they, someone talked about him having a panic attack, and uh, that's not abnormal. But are there any things in his personality or his upbringing that might mark him as somebody to watch? No, he had you know he had brothers and sisters. I have seen in the book with his family. Um, he worked at it. He, he was he was an outspoken um, defender of. of of the rights of workers, uh, he was he, he worked in a factory and he was he was he tried to he tried to get the workers you know to strike and to do things of that sort. Um, after it was done, and this is another thing, after it was done, the only thing he said to the police was, "I done my duty." Right. And your duty to who? So that. That led everyone to think it was a conspiracy. So the question, I mean, there's no question Cholgos was the one who, who, who fired the shots, just like there's no question that Lee Harvey Oswald fired the shots. The question is, how did he get to the point that he did it? Did someone put him up to it? Was he a dupe? Did he think he was working for some, somebody, or did he think he was acting in somebody's name when he was acting, actually acting for someone else? And as I said, there was this thing I found with, which was literally tens of millions of dollars, which would have been a great incentive for the right people to have launched this conspiracy. Is that something you're going to keep secret, that that money 
Part- oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, okay, okay, okay. Well, we do want to talk about the Secret Service agents, Walter George and Harry Swain, after, you know, after this break. Or, or you can just – you have 60 seconds to outline who they were. Um, and then I, we'll- I, I actually talked to, a, to a, a member of the Secret Service and got a sense of what the job was like. Um, they were largely detectives, mostly involved in counterfeiting. Um, the Secret Service was also involved in the 1880s in trying to break the Ku Klux Klan um, under President Grant, 1870s, excuse me. But they hadn't been officially assigned to be the president's protectors and would not be until after the McKinley assassination. And that might be part of the reason why, I guess. Oh, yeah. All right. Yeah. Can you tell us Certainly. a little bit about the adventures of of uh, George and Swain after this break? Sure. Okay, good. We'll continue. Lawrence Goldstone, Assassin of Shadows. Vivid period setting and amazing detail. It says on the book, and indeed, it's true. Lawrence is great, both in print and on the radio. We love him. We'll continue at WBZ in a moment. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. We are actuaries. In a world filled with unpredictability, we use our math skills to navigate uncertainty. Actuaries make a difference in people's lives across industries and the world. Actuaries have the freedom to work anywhere. And according to U.S. News & World Report, we're the 25th top-paying career. Make an impact as a fact-seeker and a truth-teller. Use your math skills for good as an actuary. The world needs you. We continue with Lawrence Goldstone, Assassin of Shadows. And a couple of the characters, we have Walt, Walter George and Harry Swain. Can you talk about what they do, their, their, their activities? Well, initially, the, uh, when the novel opens, they're in Chicago. Um, they are... Uh, capturing a gang of counterfeiters. Um, they had been, both had been Army veterans. They had been out in the West, uh, as many of the, a lot of the, a lot of law enforcement in the Midwest were, were fighting on the plains, and they, and they had fought against some Native American tribes. Uh, Harry is Walter's boss, at least in theory, but they operate very closely together. Um, Walter is is uh, very cere- is cerebral. He's read a lot. Um, he's an orphan. Uh, was raised in an orphanage under under very difficult circumstances. Um, Harry has got a sister who he wants to get, who he wants Walter to marry, and so we have a little of that, uh, a little of that going on. Um, but they are assigned because. The conspiracy was was thought to have when Cholgosh um, uh, came to speak to Emma Goldman, it was in Chicago. So everyone thought, and, and Abe Isaac, the Free Society, um, the paper that that 
said Cholgos might be a police agent. That was also in Chicago. So the initial, the center of the conspiracy was thought to be in Chicago. And it opens with Harry and Walter in Chicago, and they are assigned to the case uh, by the by by um, the head of the Secret Service, and they uh, then they have to go to Buffalo and investigate. But they end up it ends up back in Chicago. So the, by the way, the FBI doesn't exist yet till like the tw- no the twenties maybe for the FBI. Yeah, nineteen twenty early twenties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is no there is no Bureau of Investigation. There's no real national. There's no real national police. Um, there's militia. But the Secret Service is the first national, essentially national police force. And again, they are, they are um, paper money only started in, uh, in, during the Civil War. So counterfeiting became an issue uh, in the war and after the war, and the Secret Service was formed uh, largely to catch counterfeiters. And counterfeiting was, was a big deal back then. People tend to think that this is an interesting time now, but I don't think so compared to, say, the period between 1880 to 1910. Because in 1880, you still had, cow, you know, quote, cowboys and Indians. The, the West was still a wild West, right? That's when a lot of the oh, it, 60s Westerns were set in, say, 1880, right? Yeah, but and also, you know, we, we also think, wow, we're in a period of innovation. Well, we've never had anything like this. If you go between 1880 and 1910, you get the airplane, the automobile, the submarine, Freud's theory of the unconscious mind, the discovery of the electron, which is the basis of everything we do now. We got refrigeration. We got radio. The world changed in a really fundamental way. And as you said, it was a frontier. We were in kind of a frontier country by, in the 1880s, and by 1910, 1915, there were still frontier areas, but things had changed a lot. Yeah, there were frontier areas, and folks like Tesla. Was this Tesla's time? Uh, Tesla came a little later, I think. Okay, I, but I might be wrong about that. But well, you're inventing things like the X-ray machine, and it's getting pretty advanced. Yet there are still cowboys and Indians out on the frontier. That's right. Yeah, refrigeration, you know, came in on in, in on a commercial scale, and also things like electricity. Inventions that had come in the 1870s and 1880s were coming into widespread use. So people in 1920, say, lived in a way that was almost totally different than their parents, and to a degree that at least matches what we're we're doing now. And so there's a lot, you know, and that's that's a lot of fun to play with, too, in a book. Yeah, and if you're, in, say, 20 years old in 1920, chances are your father was was around for the wild, wild west. Oh, oh, absolutely. And your grandfather, absolutely. you know, if you, if you had a real grandfather, it would go even further back, pre-Civil War. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. All right. Yeah. Now, uh, in the course of investigating all this, you do uncover some stuff like the underside of the medical industry or medicine at the time. Well, yeah, that's, that's in the previous book, Deadly Cure. That's another thing that happened um, in my previous novel, which is another what if. In 1899, the Bayer Company, Bayer Aspirin, 
but Bayer was a dye maker. They introduced two new wonder drugs. One is this incredible pain reliever and brings down fevers called aspirin. And the other was a miracle cough medicine for children because coughing was, was, a, was a major cause of death in children. And this was an absolutely wonder drug that would cure coughs in children. And it was called heroin. Ah. And, that, and that is totally true. And it was called heroin because the people in Germany, when they tried it on themselves, it made them feel heroish, heroic. Wow. And heroin was introduced in this country totally legally. And you can go, if you go on um, the Internet, you can see ads for heroin, for heroin lozenges, for heroin syrup. And so that was, that was the book, uh, Deadly Cure, that I did before Assassin of Shadows about the the Bayer company and they introducing these this new wonder drug for kids and they and you can see testimonials the doctor said oh i gave this to my patients 4 years old it was wonderful so they stopped coughing right away and wasn't this the cocaine was a thing too right cocaine yes cocaine was um Cocaine was in Coca-Cola. I mean, that's in, I think, 1919. Finally, Coca-Cola had to take the cocaine out, and, and, and that's when Pepsi-Cola came in to, um, to compete with it. Uh, yeah, cocaine, cocaine was not as widespread because people had a sense of what cocaine was. They didn't know quite how addictive it was. But heroin, they had, to, just to give you, I mean, heroin is, is the chemical name is diacetylmorphine. It's morphine that gets into your bloodstream that much faster, but it is morphine. And heroin was marketed. One of the other uses was supposedly that it was a cure for morphine addiction, which obviously turned out not to be true. All right. Now to the assassin, Chol Ghosh. He pulls the trigger. What happens to him? And we have time for lots of detail. Well, um, the, the Big Jim Parker jumps on him, wrestles him to the ground, keeps him from getting off a third shot. Afterwards, Foster and Ireland then jump on him and start pummeling him. Um, so he is, he is removed bloodied to the, boss, to the Buffalo jail and where he is held. And uh, he is obviously going to be charged with an attempted assassination. McKinley is taken to Milburn House, the house of one, of one of the wealthy. Buffalo was a remarkably wealthy city in 1901. It was because um, Niagara Falls was supplying hydroelectric power. Right. So it was a thriving, it was a, tons of industry. And so McKinley is taken, put in the bedroom. He seems fine. Uh, they are very cautious. They make the decision not to remove the second bullet, and he gets steadily better, and you, and you can follow the newspaper accounts. And then a week afterwards, on I guess on the, he does on the 14th, so on the 12th, they decide he's good enough to um, take solid food, and, it turns, and, and he's getting gangrene in, the, in his stomach lining this entire time, but it doesn't, it doesn't really manifest itself, so they give him some toast and eggs, he asked for a cigar. They said, no, President McKinley, you can't have a cigar. And that night, he just, he, his condition deteriorated totally. And the next morning, the morning of the 14th, September 14th, he was dead. So there was a, tr then, a, tr course, a trial. There was, there was, a, there was a brief trial. Um, Cholgos was, of course, convicted and was executed 
using another new modern technique the electric called the electric chair. chair. Yeah. Right. So there you have, so electricity figures into this. Oh, and by the way, when McKinley was uh, taken from the fair to the house, it was by electric ambulance. That's right. Because electric cars. Electric ambulance. Right. Electric cars were a very big deal back then. It was only after, um, that's, in the, that's a nonfiction book I did. I love this period, you can, as you can tell. Um, elect the first commercial fleet of vehicles ever in the United States was in New York City, and it was a fleet of 13 electric taxis. And they had a huge blizzard in 18, it was 1899 in February, that a huge blizzard, and the only thing they could get through were Isaac Rice owned the company, Isaac Rice's electric taxis. So he sells the company, the company inflates in value, he sells the company to a consortium um, run by William Collins Whitney, who had been Grover Cleveland's Secretary of the Navy, and is, is the patriarch of the Whitney fortune. And Whitney and a couple of other people start what amounts to a scam, trying to get people to buy into this whole electric taxi thing, saying that we're going to put it all across the country, and he had no, but it was a pyramid scheme. So when that, when that collapsed, Whitney got out with all his money, when that scheme collapsed, it doomed electric cars for a century. But electric cars were much more popular back then than gasoline, than, than uh, hydrocarbons. Just kind of an observation about the time. Um, remember, yeah. we, we talked about the simultaneous existence of the Wild West and all this technology. And w as I talk about it, I can't help but conjure images of the TV show Wild Wild West, because that's kind of what it was right. all about. These guys are out west right. in a train car, but they have all this newfangled technology. Yes. Yes, and they, and they worked it in. That was a really clever show, because all the technology they worked in was... Were, was actually things that were technologically feasible back then. And, and, and you're right, it, it coexisted in a way that we don't have today, where today we have modern technology, but it's coexisting with slightly less modern technology. But back then, there was this huge contrast. And it's also the time for the germination. It's the time in which steampunk, the notion of steampunk is comes from steampunk being this there's a whole... Are you familiar with steampunk? No. Okay. Well, you're going to need to check this out because this, it's a thing where a group of young people, they're, they're into steampunk, and steampunk is kind of where they use old pipes and wrenches and old kind of materials to do scientific stuff. Like, like a, it's as if you had an, a... Like a, instead of using a telephone as we know it, you'd have some other device made out of a bunch of pipes and old school stuff to do the stuff that a telephone does. Just Google no. it. Google it. You'll see. I and will. It, and the, I will. That the, sounds great. The idea from it is kind of analogous to Wild Wild West and is all about the juxtaposition of the primitiveness of the time and the, the technology that, of the time. So I, I need to break now. I think we've covered it all. You have this. You haven't told us everything. Of course, you need to get the book to find out that twist. Now, what is the thing you're not telling us again? Don't um, don't tell was, us. There, I'm no. I know. There was uh, there was a reason. There was a potential reason that a conspiracy could have been hatched 
outside the anarchist movement, and it was something of tens of millions of dollars. And it turned out that this is actual. This is an actual possibility, which is why at the beginning of the show, I, when you said um, it's fiction up to a, it's nonfiction up to a point, and then, and I said, well, I'm not sure. Right. This is so persuasive. And the facts and the research led me to, to the point where I couldn't say it didn't happen this way. Okay. Lawrence Goldstone, as always, thank you so much for staying up late and hanging, hanging out with us. Thank you, Bradley. It's always great to talk to you. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.